We invite you to listen into a recent event featuring a panel of industry experts hosted by the United States Bartenders Guild Atlanta chapter, part of their ongoing series on Bar Talk Radio on the Pro Business Channel Networks. The event was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wrecking Bar Brew Pub near an area of Atlanta known as Little Five Points. This event was moderated by Anthony Porquez, the host of Bar Talk Radio. As founder and headcraft cocktail specialist of Liquid Culture, Anthony has over 17 years in the food and beverage industry. Spanning from Boston, Los Angeles, Australia, and locally in Athens and Atlanta, Anthony has provided top-tier professional service and training to establishments of all kinds in the U.S. and abroad. Formerly the senior bartender for the two-time James Beard Award-nominated cocktail bar at Holman & Fitch Public House, Porquez has contributed greatly to the success of H&F's highly respected cocktail program. He's been a guest bartender for Bacardi Street Party Portfolio Event at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans and is a contract mixology consultant for a major local spirits distributor. Furthermore, Porquez was a curriculum developer and instructor for Holman and Finch's Academy of Bartending while holding the role of communications coordinator for the Resurgence Hospitality Group. Currently, he's a brand advocate for six different distilleries in addition to providing cocktail events and spirits education privately and within the industry as well. Before we get underway, let's take a minute to introduce the lineup of distinguished speakers on our panel. First up is Tiffany Barreri, a Houston native who now calls Atlanta home, has previously overseen and operated the award-winning beverage program at One Flew South since the restaurant's 2008 opening at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Under Tiffany's creative direction, One Flew South has been held as one of the best airport bars in the world by press outlets such as Esquire, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and more. Under Tiffany's direction, One Flew South was named Best Airport Bar in the World at Tales of the Cocktail in 2014. Barreri's background and training include the Bar Smarts program under the tutelage of King Cocktail legend Dale DeGroff and cocktail historian David Wondrich. Tiffany is an active member of Atlanta's dynamic cocktail scene and is often known by her nickname, The Drinking Coach, due to her passion for and knowledge of spirits and their history. Previous secretary of the Atlanta chapter of the United States Bartender Guild, a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance, frequently in cocktail challenge events, festivals around Atlanta and the Southeast. Her current project includes working with the number three tequila in the nation, Avion, and with Chef Duane Nutter and his culinary projects throughout the South. Smiles and providing great service is indeed the intention in her every pour. Our second panelist is Caleb Cribb. Caleb started in food and beverage in Valdosta, Georgia, in a rock and roll dive bar named Vito's as a bartender and a sound man. Upon moving to Athens, Georgia, he began as a doorman and barback, working in a volume sports bar and towny scene bar named Transmopolitan, where he spent five years leaving as the bar manager. After that, he moved into fine dining at the now-defunct Farm 255, where he developed the first craft cocktail program in Athens, after staging with Miles Mick at Leon's Full Service. He moved to Atlanta after taking a job with National Distributing Company as their in-house mixologist and craft spirit specialist. He spent almost two years with the distributor before taking over as lead bar at Holman & Finch Public House, spending two years running that program. That program in 2007 was the birthplace of Atlanta's craft scene. Since November, he has been an account consultant for Enthuse Marketing Company, representing the Diageo Reserve Portfolio in Atlanta. Also joining us on the panel is Miles McQuarrie. As a baby, Miles McQuarrie opted for a Japanese-style two-in-one jigger over a pacifier. Wearing a period-correct tiny mustache, McQuarrie couples knowledge of obscure classic cocktails with an uncanny ability to talk like a nerd when it comes to ice, spirits, and cocktail technique. Atlanta Magazine says Miles McQuarrie could serve cocktails in an old shoe and they'd still taste better than those of his competitors. For the past 12 years, Miles McQuarrie lives to serve the perfect cocktail. He's the beverage director and managing partner of Kimball House in Decatur, Georgia, 
and has been a James Beard semifinalist four years in a row for Best Bar Program. He pays homage to the classic cocktail structure while blending innovation and genuine hospitality. Calling McQuarrie merely passionate is an understatement. This bartender-turned-restaurant owner and operator exhibits a relentless eye for technique, execution, and detail. Like the best of his pro peers and calling from traditions of the Southeast, McQuarrie mixes his own house-made bitters and tinctures and honors seasonal ingredients obtained in his restaurant garden. These components set his drinks apart and have helped form his award-winning style. McQuarrie has been voted Best Mixologist in Creative Loafing's Best of Atlanta the past several years, and Bon Appetit named Kimball House Best New Cocktail Bar in the country in 2014. Our fourth member of the panel is Ian Cox. Born in Atlanta, Georgia, and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, Ian Cox took a circuitous path to find his true calling as a craft bartender. As a certified specialist in spirits, CSS, and a graduate of the Bar Smarts program, as well as a member of a family who just loves to cook, Ian is simply a lover of all things culinary. To him, there's nothing better than a meal or cocktail artfully crafted using fresh local ingredients. With aspirations of one day starting his own craft pub, Ian is currently focusing his efforts on the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia as a whole as the staff mixologist and craft spirit specialist for national distributing. Along with that, he's currently the president of the United States Bartenders Guild, Atlanta chapter. Food in and of itself brings back special memories of friends and family for Ian. With the majority of his family's celebrations taking center stage in the kitchen, it's no wonder that Ian gravitated to the hospitality industry. From the down-home cooking of his grandmother and mother to the adventurous styles of both his father and his brother-in-law, Ian has taken inspiration from everyone and uses the same ideals in the development of his cocktail menus. After attending both the United States Air Force Academy and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he played football for both the Falcons and the Tar Heels, he began his restaurant career bartending at Pantana Bob's in Chapel Hill. From there, Ian decided to try his hand at a corporate career and became a registered representative for the John Hancock Financial Services team. Feeling unfulfilled, Ian went back to his passion working in restaurants as a bartender for Daddy Max on Topsail Island, North Carolina. It was the next step in Ian's journey that led to his love of both craft food and cocktails when he traveled to Crest Butte, Colorado to be the bar manager for the Ice Bar at Uli's Cabin for the Crested Butte, Montana Resort. It was here that he began his true education in both craft food and spirits. After moving to Atlanta in 2011, he helped open and began working at the Wrecking Bar as the head bartender and quickly became enamored with the amazing craft cocktail and food scene that is blooming in the city. After holding the position of assistant general manager and beverage director for three years at Wrecking Bar, he moved on to help open the Luminary as their beverage director with top chef alum Eli Kirstein. Wanting to broaden his horizons and learn another aspect of the beverage industry, Ian accepted the position of staff mixologist with National Distributing in December 2014. This position allowed him to focus on the aspects of the industry that he truly enjoys, education and training across the state of Georgia. After two years in this position, Ian accepted the role as marketing manager for Infinium Spirits, where he continues to educate people on small boutique spirits in Tennessee. Ian was the Atlanta chapter president for the United States Bartenders Guild, USBG, from 2014 to 2017, and he's won multiple cocktail competitions and awards. In 2014, he placed third at the USBG National Championship Shake It Up competition, as well as being named Eater Atlanta's Bartender of the Year for 2014. And in 2013, he won the National Beef Eater 24 Cocktail Contest, earning him the title of USBG National Champion and was given the right to represent USBG in the World Cocktail Competition. Richard Tang, born and raised in New York City, Richard Tang moved to Atlanta 18 years ago and quickly became a fixture in the Atlanta bar and restaurant scene. With over 20 years in the food and beverage industry, Richard Tang has worked and managed multiple concepts, 
ranging from the Four Seasons Hotel and the Ritz-Carlton Lodge to BED, Straits, and Chicken and the Egg. As the owner of Tangy Events, Richard has also been the creative mind behind many events held at various places, such as the Melia Hotel, Cuckoo Room, Tongue and Groove, Havana Club, and the Glen Hotel. The former general manager and operating partner of Kraft Izakaya has since then opened his first venue, Char Korean Bar and Grill, an innovative spin on traditional Korean barbecue. Brian Boykin With over a decade of experience in the spirits industry and luxury hotel management, Brian Boykin has been a driving force behind award-winning cocktail programs for brands such as W Hotels and Diageo Brands. He understands the complexities of local consumer culture and the need for brands to connect to that culture authentically via education, lifestyle, and program activation. Brian is also an account consultant for Enthuse Marketing Company, representing the Diageo Reserve portfolio in Atlanta. And finally, Paul Kilvert joins in the discussion. Paul has been working in restaurants and bars since he was 15. A graduate of the College of Charleston and Georgia State University, with degrees in English literature from both, Paul worked as a teacher in Boston for years, but couldn't get the food and drink business out of his system. In 2010, Paul moved back to Atlanta to open a cocktail bar called The Sound Table, which was named one of the best bars in the South by Imbibe Magazine in its first six months of business. In 2012, Paul became beverage director for local hangout Victory Sandwich Bar and then managing partner for the classically inspired steakhouse and cocktail bar Paper Plane. Paper Plane was an immediate success and was recognized by Esquire, Garden and Gun, Southern Living, The Guardian UK, and CNN as one of the best bars in America. In 2015, Paul combined forces with a few of his best friends to open Ticonderoga Club, a tavern townie bar and restaurant in the Crog Street Market. Paul is also a contributing writer for the local palette and the SFA and has had his recipes published in dozens of magazines. Paul believes in Atlanta and the amazing hospitality community that thrives here. And now, let's join in as the event moderator, Anthony Porquez, host of Bar Talk Radio and president of the United States Bartenders Guild, Atlanta Chapter, begins with his first question. My first question will be directed to Ian Cox. Being the former president of the Atlanta USBG and having a successful competition career, what is your opinion of Atlanta's food and beverage culture over recent years? Thank you for starting with me. Absolutely. Um, over the last, let's see, I moved here about six years ago, and it's done nothing but go up. I mean, you've seen a small group of restaurants grow into such a large one where you have places like Kimball House that have opened up and got to from the road at, and these places that are making their mark on the national level. Uh, Atlanta is being starting to be recognized as one of those great food and beverage cities. And uh, the culture is just getting closer and closer, and we're all working together to maybe uh, we all want to be great in this and get us recognized up there with New York and kind of China. Uh, and I think we'll be every, every year we get that. Uh, great. Paul. Yeah, same question. What is, what is your opinion of Atlanta's food and beverage culture? Uh, a lot of opinions. Um, um, yeah, I would, I would say kind of uh, taking what Ian was just talking about and, and going forward, it's interesting to hear Ian say um, that Atlanta's you know, food and beverage culture is moving forward, which I think is true. Um, and you know, to hear him say getting up there to places like New York and then Miami, right? I think one of the things that happens to Atlanta as a city that offers restaurants, bars, whatever, 
uh, is that oftentimes the kind of the overall like tourist appeal of Atlanta is confused a little bit with like the quality of food and beverage. So there. Everybody, if you have cell phones, please silence them uh, if you haven't done so already. Anyway, my point just being that uh, Atlanta has a food and beverage culture that I think is far superior to many other cities in the South. But Atlanta itself is maybe not as easy to kind of connect with as a place that's on the ocean, like Miami, or a place that has this kind of like Disney vibe charm, like Charleston or New Orleans. Um, and those are great cities too. Uh, but I do think that Atlantic food beverage culture is far beyond a lot of other kind of other cities in the south and in the country. Um, and while some other cities might be more visually appealing to Atlanta, or you know might not be as kind of scrappy, uh, they might already be a little more refined visually. I think Atlanta, you know, I, put another way, I think Atlanta food beverage culture is already pretty advanced. And every time I go to other cities and eat drink, I go, man, Atlanta's got this city's number. And it's actually had, you know, whatever random city I have to be in this number for years, you know? So I, I don't know. I, one of the things I'd love to talk about today, I'm sure we'll various points, is like, we're often talking about Atlanta's food beverage culture, like, getting there. I think we're, we're at a pretty, Great place, you know. I think we're, I think we're there, or, or pretty close to there, wherever there is. You can always improve, but I don't know. Right. I'm, I'm here constantly to say, you know, Atlanta's pretty amazing already. Right. And that's that's what I was getting at. I, I wasn't disparaging Atlanta, saying we're not there. I think I just put it in a more in a, in a better way, which is we're already there. Now it's at a point where Atlanta needs to recognize it, and that's what I was getting at. You know, having moved to Nashville and seeing that same growth that I saw now. Okay, great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, next question is about cocktail culture. This one is directed towards Tiffany. Uh, Tiffany, you ran a globally recognized bar program at Once Blue South at the airport. Um, based on your experience, what is Atlanta's cocktail culture now and how has it changed or stayed the same from what, from what Ian has told us from? Um, hello, hello. Y'all hear me? Okay. Um, to what Paul said, we are definitely there. I get a chance to travel a lot. I get a chance to, of course, when I was at one of the South, people came to me and they were not living in Atlanta. Uh, one thing that Atlanta has, and you can look at the room collectively, is we have um, genuine integrity and hospitality. No matter what restaurant you work in, if it's a bar, if it's a pool hall, if it's a fine dining, it's a hotel, uh, all around the chef and all around the bar is hospitality. And that's something that we win on every time, not knocking those beautiful cities that we visit in Portland, New York, to Miami, but again, they have a niche to the city. They have a, a feng shui where us, we're, we're just cool as hell, and, and we're cool naturally, and we found that through our food and our plates and our, and our energy. So to me, that's culture. To me, that's present. To me, that's what makes us win. And to be recognized is just to kind of own up to what we do individually in a certain, you know, and I guess in like, a nice way, for, for lack of better words. I get offended when I hear the word Southern Hospitality. Uh, working in the airport all the time, people would say, oh, forgot, I forgot I was in the South. And I'm like, does that mean I can't be nice to you? Like, what does that mean? And, and if we're going to own that, if you're going to say, I'm from another city that's not nice, or doesn't focus on that, well, you can have it, and we'll hold it. So 
Um, our, our, our service in our industry, our service in Atlanta to me is so niche that you can't take it away because we're, we're genuine and honest all the time. Right. All right. the time. Miles, you've been in the industry for a long time and in very different capacities as well. Like, what do you, what's your take on the culture seeing now and where it's headed? You know, I've certainly seen it grow. <laughs> I've certainly seen it grow uh, and seen it grow at a fast rate, and it's 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 a good thing. I think you know, growth is is good in in a lot of ways and, and bad in some others. But I think the culture here with food and beverages. It's fantastic, and, and uh, watching that kind of evolve, and then seeing people that who are bartender friends of mine open, all open their own place, and I had the opportunity to open my own place from the standpoint of a bartender who had passion for this industry, and it was more than just a job, but it was a true love for, you know, taking care of people, the history of drinks, and, you know, the interaction with the public and all that. It's, uh, it's been a, a really cool thing. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So our next uh, topic is hospitality and service. Uh, Caleb, you've had a unique career from volume bartender to distributor rep to lead bar at Holman & Finch and now as a cocktail consultant for Diageo. Um, Paul, you've had been the driving force behind, uh, of course, you know, the big brands, uh, Sound Table and uh, emergency drinking beer and such, and, Ty- and, and also opening recently Tycon River Club. What is your philosophy on hospitality and service in this industry, and how do we apply that in our establishments? Caleb, why don't you take this one off? Thanks. Um, so, the philosophy of hospitality, uh, that's a huge question, but honestly, the beauty of hospitality is that it's kind of industryless, right? Like, you can be a hospitalitarian in any industry. As it relates to what we do, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Sean Kenny who I have a huge crush on. He's uh, he owns a couple places in in Colorado, but he he's well known for knowing for saying the state that there's nobility in service. And um, you know, I think it's fantastic. We can all say how good we are at cocktails or how great things we've done with that. But if the hospitality if the hospitality is not there first and foremost, then who cares how good a drink you can make? I mean, that's that's secondary to anything as long as you can't be nice. So I think that's my philosophy on hospitality as it stands is if you can't have a genuine passion for standing in front of people and creating an experience for them more than just being an order taker, then what are you doing? I mean, it's it's great. Like we, we all have a passion for drinking really good drinks, but yeah, if you don't have a passion for making that person have a great experience, then it's kind of a good point. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of philosophy. Paul, what is your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Caleb. Uh, and you know what's really interesting is having taken part in these conversations privately and publicly in the USBG and in my life for almost, I mean, I guess seven years now, personally, uh, we've had this conversation many times. and. We've said that thing every time we have it, that hospitality is first. You know, um, Tiffany mentioned, you know, Southern hospitality, which I think that obviously there are positive and negative connotations to that, or not negative, but just kind of hokey at some points. But there's nothing negative about being hospitable, right? Um, I'm always trying to figure out how it is that Atlanta has a particular brand of hospitality in its bars, right? And 
the conversation that Greg and I have had, my partner Greg and I, Miles, I think we've had this talk too before, um, is that because in Atlanta you don't really have a cocktail bar, right? There's no such thing in Atlanta as a cocktail bar, really, because every cocktail bar has to serve food. Right in Boston, where I'm from, there are cocktail bars because you can just serve foods without food, or you can have like popcorn. Um, kind of like Grant gets away with the church, which is wonderful, by the way. I think it's awesome that he does that. I think I hope more people can kind of continue to push and make boundaries of that land. But Atlanta never has really had like true cocktail bars, right? We've had places that put the focus on cocktails, but you always have to have food, which means you have to have a chef, which means you have to have service, which means that like hospitality is always a part of it. Mm-hmm. So. Southern hospitality is this kind of ephemeral thing that it's tough to define and kind of figure out exactly how how we get to southern hospitality versus western or northern or whatever. But I think in Atlanta, we have a particular brand of southern hospitality that is really driven by the fact that we have these beverage establishments that have to have a cook, right? And when you have to have a cook, you have to have a service, and then you, know, then you have an experience, not just like put your foot up on the rail and have a quick daiquiri and meat. Not that that's... That's great too. <laughs> Which is perfect because that leads us to the culture and how we affect and how the, how we affect the culture and how the culture is being affected. Um, this one's directed to both um, Brian Miles and Ian. Um, how so we've seen exponential growth in Atlanta in terms of restaurants and bars opening in the past like three to four years alone. How is this affecting Atlanta food culture? And food and culture, and with this trend, how do you as professionals affect the culture in a positive way? Um, Miles, why do you start first? Oh, well, one thing I think, you know, like I said, the growth is, is great in a lot of ways, and uh, one thing that we, especially in the, in the restaurant business, that you have to be careful of is that with all of these restaurants opening, um, that means that there's not room for everybody. Uh, and so places do close, which is the unfortunate uh, downside of this business. Um, so I think it holds everyone's level of service and hospitality and quality of food and quality of beverage to a higher standard. Um, and, and, and that's that's a great thing. Uh, but it means, you know, as all these places open, not everyone can stay. So I think, I think you'll have, you know, some location-based and some... Is uh, some places are destinations, and I think at the end of the day, um, the places that will stay in these footholds in the city are places that have so much thought put into every category. That means you know you can't. Some some places may have a great chef, but their service isn't great, or they might have you know a great cocktail program, but you know the food's not good. So I think you know being that, like Paul said, every place that does cocktails in, in this town is essentially a restaurant. Um, that means that everything you do, be it your beer selection, your wine list, your service, uh, the presence on the floor, uh, has to be up here. Um, and I think that sets a great standard for what we can expect from the city moving forward. Great. Brian, you, you come from a lot of uh, hotel background uh, experiences. What's, what's your take on that? It's, it's been interesting over the last, like, almost a decade, agreeing with Miles also, that there's been uh, an influx of concepts opening around the city and what, what I've noticed and especially in the, in the consultative realm it's um, not a lot of attention to the details of the city and what makes it so unique. Uh, there's a lot of ideas, um, there's a lot of ideas that I capital. In these situations the person that goes is a concept um, 
and, and that's that's the thing that makes the actual place necessary and great. And um, and having some of those conversations with owner operators, bar managers, and whatnot, when they want to create uh, uh, their or carve out the lane, it's you know geographically where where you're setting up your business. Ties it ties to the community. It's not about what. What necessarily you want to do because you have this amazing idea, but how frequent are you about the city? And it's in, in many situations now over the last couple of years, when we've seen a lot of great concepts not make it, uh, is because of you know the one block rule, or maybe um, uh, you know just being in a, just a different area in, in general, and you enlist great great staff to come in and make the concept great, but it doesn't make the most sense for that particular area. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities in this city, and you know, like I said, over the last ten years, watching some really great concepts either fold or some really decent ones that just really got it right and understood what was necessary for their for their area, and said, look, we can't have thirty cocktails on our, on our menu, um, but what we do need to focus on is going back is the guest service component, and they win. And they do really well. Maybe it wasn't necessarily the concept that you had in mind in the beginning, but it makes sense. And essentially, you are actually able to execute it the way that you want. I think that's kind of the direction that you know we're going. Like just trying to cement what it is, like our identity and what it is. Great, thank you. Yeah, you got any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I, I think everyone's just kind of down it. And you know, even going back to the last question and you know Paul's comments about hospitality and about you know, my comments about. You know, maybe this thing great, but you know, you're lacking here. You should never lack in service and hospitality, and that's why we're here. You know, teach anybody to make that happen. You know, push them to be, to, to get a great service. Some you gotta want and just instill into them, you know, and things like that. Right, and I'll say pers- personally too that when I want to get good service and have a good cocktail, I go to their Kendall House, I go to Tycoon Bar, without a doubt. Brian, you have something to share real quick? Okay, sure. Another quick thing that I've noticed as well is that with a lot of the old things that have taken place, and as I look around the room between uh, our operators, uh, bartenders, barbacks, whatnot, what's happened is, is um, and I don't think anyone else wants to touch on this as well, is that they're the talent pool. Um, is becoming increasingly thin because what's happened is that a lot of places that are opening up don't have the time because again going back to the other comment, not having the operating capital, not having the operating operating not having the operating capital to be um, uh, you know to maintain uh, productivity and things like that. You know, it, it, it gives people in a bad place and it becomes it becomes mildly caustic because the, the, the bartenders who are so incredibly important, the servers that are so incredibly important, aren't getting what they need. Um, and they begin to take less, let's say less responsibility, but they don't care as much and becomes kind of systemic. Right. So so that what I've noticed is that the, the talent pool has begun to deteriorate a little bit. I think things like this. You know, having the right kind of conversations has become increasingly important. Um, to you know, getting everyone back on, on the same page about what we want to do in the city. I just wanted to also touch on the fact that uh, one conversation we got into kind of in the background before we started this was 
you know, what, like, how does it, I'm thinking about the whole initial question, how does it affect or affect the culture? And it goes back to, you know, what does it really get you on a day-to-day basis to show up or juice extra? Or what does it get you to, you know, to show up on your day off to just see what the bar is doing or make sure that you're there for R&D and cocktail days and things like that? And on a day-to-day basis, okay, you may not be able to see what it's going to get you in the long run, but you have to know that that it, it's not you gain something. It's that something is being gained for you, and you are then learning in turn to give yourself to it. And that, I think, ultimately is what what makes somebody, you know, something better than themselves in this industry. Is you have to. You show up every day and you, you just let it happen naturally. It's got to be something that comes genuinely, otherwise you're never going to make it outside of it because you're just going to keep wondering to yourself, okay, well, when's it my turn? When's it my turn? When's it my turn? Well, just like we talked about, like, it may become your turn and you just may not be ready. Like, as much as you tell yourself, you may just not be ready. And you just kind of have to stay the course. And I think that's how affecting the culture really matters. Like. Stay in your lane until it's time. When it's time, you'll know. I mean, it'll come calling for you. Yeah, I think the great thing about this industry is it's one of the last true apprenticeships in a lot of ways. And then when you have this huge influx and exponential growth of restaurants opening, there is a disparity of, of good mentors passing on that skill set to, to those other bartenders. So it, it is uh, good to have everyone here to talk about this because you're, you're right, Brian. It, it's, makes this conversation all the more important to help us ban this community and, and be able to share that knowledge so for the betterment of the, the culture of the city. Which uh, leads us to our next thing, which is about uh, specific bar careers and different career paths, which is really something that I know a lot of people here want to talk about. Um, so traditionally in this industry, you have basically like three options. To be like an owner-operator from a bar manager position, you can be a, a brand rep, or you can um, essentially, you know, be work for a distributor. And there's other things, the hybrid positions too, that are kind of happening now in the industry. But we'll focus on these three right now. Um, first, I think it'd be really powerful to explain the three-tier system, specifically here in Georgia and in the city of Atlanta. And Caleb, since you've had experience in all three of these different types of jobs, why don't you explain to us what the three-tier system is and how all the different components that work with that? How many people have an understanding of what the three-tier system is? When you say the word three-tier, what does that mean? I mean, how many people actually know that? Okay. So, I mean, and, and that's, honest, to be quite honest with you, that's um, So, it works differently in each state because each state is governed by their own laws, have been that way since prohibition. But in Georgia specifically, we have a three-tiered system that's called a franchise state. Franchise state means that once a brand, brand X, signs on to a distributor, the distributor owns the rights to distribute that product in that state, and it is the distributor's choice to be able to release that person or keep that person or trade that to another house. Okay, so all the rights exist with the distributor in Georgia. So the three-tiered system is at the top level you have the people who make the product. That's your distillers, uh, that's the people who put the juice in the bottle. Just underneath that, in the same tier, you have suppliers. That are, that's your Infiniums, Diageos, Nisotoris, uh, Proximo. All these people that come in that um, 
for no required apologies. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> so you just underneath that, you have the supplier level. And then under the supplier level, you have the distribution level. Distribution is literally logistics. It is what it says it is. That is your, in Georgia, for those of you who are doing your onboarding as bar managers, or people who are familiar with it, that is National Distributing, Empire, United, uh, Georgia Crown, so on and so forth. There's like maybe 15 or so in town. Um, and I can tell you that is where the big difference in other states lie. Uh, a lot of the times you don't have as many distributors in other states, you have big conglomerate distributors like what's known as Republic National in other markets, or you have uh, Breakthrough Spirits, or things like that. So that's the, the middle tier is really just all distribution. And then on the bottom tiers, what industry we call retailer, but essentially that just means bars and restaurants, right? So, or, and that's divided into two sections, on-premise and off-premise. Off-premise being liquor stores, on-premise being bars and restaurants. So understanding that structure, and kind of what each role those people kind of occupy, I think you, you can kind of get a better understanding of if there's somewhere that you want to go based on your skill set, some those places are going to occupy different places. E and I have both worked for National Distributing as the in-house mixologist at the time. Um, yes, we like that word, but that's, I mean, industry watch, you have to be used to say that word sometimes because that's how they identify us. That's how they identify you. That's as simple as that. Um, so, from that position, may not be made for one person, that's made for another, same supplier, about the same for bar ownership and management, because there's just some people built for that life, some people not built for that life. So, that three-tier system, knowing that structure, and when somebody comes to you and says, oh, I represent brand, this brand, right? For Tiffany's sake, I'll throw it to you there. If they, if they represent, if she comes in and says, I represent Avion Tequila, all right? Well, it's not, Avion is not hiring her. It is Pernod Ricard, the parent company, that is hiring her. And this is another small detail to it that we're not really going to touch on too much, but her and I, Brian, uh, Ian, you're directly hired, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so the three of us are hired from marketing agencies. So, you are, you are you know, straight from straight out. So, we are hired from a third party marketing agency, and that is to protect the supplier side. So, we are hired through um, a, basically a company that says, okay, you will represent Diageo in Atlanta, but you are getting your paychecks hired through us. That's to protect the company. So, understand that that marketing company is who you're actually hiring, essentially, have two bosses, two companies that are your bosses. So, I mean, imagine the communication level doubling to whatever anybody has to do. Yes, you can kill. And the reason why they do that is for liability purposes. That way, God forbid, if you know, um, um, Brian and Caleb were to you know, do something inappropriate or do something wrong, it wouldn't effectively hurt Josh's reputation. So that's why there's that marketing company, just in case you're curious about that, because I always really curious about that. Real quick, this is the last thing I'll say. The people, if, if you do, I'm sorry to bring this up because it is a touchy subject, but I've been asked by people before. Uh, okay, well, I have a DUI. Can I work for X company? There is a, a period limit to where you will not be able to work for a supplier or distributor if you have a DUI on your record. That's just the name of the game. Like, 
there's ways around that now. There's like loopholes and gray areas in Georgia, but uh, yeah, like that's this is the same reason why they use marketing stuff so they protect the reputation of the supplier or parent. Okay, great, thank you. So thank you for explaining the feature system. I think that's really helpful for everyone to know. Um, let's go into the owner and operator side of um, positions. And this one, you know, is where I just all the miles. Um, you guys have light years of experience when it comes to opening up restaurants. Um, what is the one thing that blindsided you or something you completely did not think about when you were in the process of opening your restaurants? Uh, one that blindsided me was uh, being from, I, I did, never went to business school, um, and there were some certain things that uh, nobody tells you. When you're going and you have a business plan, and you're going to banks to hunt down financing, uh, typically, whatever you're asking for, you need to have 100% of that collateralized. So if you need $500,000 to open uh, a bar or restaurant, you need to have $500,000 in collateral to get the deal done. If you don't have outside investment, just giving you the money to do it. So it's not quite like a home loan. Uh, it's, it's a bit different, especially they created a flavor restaurants because the uh, success rate is not as high. Um, and uh, yeah, so that I would say definitely. Um, thinking that we're, because we know what we're doing, we'd be able to find uh, Money easy, it was, uh, it was it took us years to get by. Paul, do you have anything that you want to share? Yeah, I was just remembering, like having flashbacks. Yeah, that's extremely, I guess one thing that we learned uh, opening the Tech Hunter Club was that nobody cares that we know what we're doing. Nobody in the bank, right? I mean, they, they don't care how confident we are, they don't care how many years of experience we have. Really, I mean, it's nice, and it's part of your package, right? When you apply for your loan, but it's not. Um, it's so much less impressive to them than collateral, uh, and that's a, that's a huge part of it. Um, and that actually, I would say, is a is a big thing too, because if you take uh, all of your savings and empty it out to buy your first home or something, and then you want to open a restaurant, and you go to the bank, and they say, okay, well, if your restaurant fails, we're going to take your home. You have to really be like, you have to know that this is your career, right? I mean, no different than opening up any other business, but in or outside of this industry. But that, that's a definite moment of reckoning. That I don't know that that answers the question if this is something I learned. I mean, I, we, I knew that was coming, but I certainly think about it every time I unlock the door of my house, you know, uh, or my restaurant, which is my other house. Um, I, I would also say one thing to think about if you're thinking about opening a restaurant is, especially now in this climate, in this city, in this culture, um, you know, we, uh, I was just talking to my business partner who's in Chicago right now for the National Restaurant Association, NRA. Um, <laughs> I think they continue, I think they run with the acronym because I think it's fun. <laughs> uh, but, so he's out at NRA, uh, which is their, their annual conference. Um, and, you know, he gleans a lot of information and we've been talking every day and we're smart. And something that is, many of you guys probably know, or I mean, you guys know, Miles, we talk about this with your partners, but uh, nationally, uh, in, the, in the U.S., the uh, hospitality industry has seen five straight quarters of decline in profitability. Five straight quarters, that's over a year, obviously, of decline in profitability. But restaurants are opening every day in every corner, like, how, how can this be, right? Um, well, it takes the, the live 
market some time to catch up to what is going on in the banks, essentially. And I think we're approaching a moment of very serious reckoning. Um, you know, had I known that before we opened the club, but I uh, definitely certainly not. I mean, you know how long it takes to open something, right? Um, uh, so it's like the, the condition of the market now might be quite different by the time you open your restaurant a year from now or a year and a half from now. But, um, but it is definitely something to, to think about, I think, for all of us in this industry as we go forward. Like, what is happening out there in the restaurant industry? And, you know, what, I, I, don't, I, I have some mixed emotions about the future. Uh, I, I try to be optimistic. But, yeah, anyway, that's off topic. <laughs> Thank you. And I'd just like to make one quick announcement. It's been brought to my attention. There's a black actor outside that I believe is blocking something. So if you have a black actor, if you could please be on the front door, I appreciate it. Great. Okay, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. It's also, you know, I know there's a lot of people in here who may have a dream of opening up a song bar, and that's really good advice because that's something else. So when this note may sound discouraging, don't let it be. It's just a hard, long journey, and uh, I think, you know, Atlanta has a rapidly growing population, and it just means that you're, uh, you have to have really solid partners and a good idea, and be uh, willing to put it to work back. Yeah, I, I, I have to second that. I don't mean to be, I, I'm a New Englander by birth, and I can be a grump, but um, I, I don't mean to be negative about opening a restaurant at all, certainly. It's my, my fiance owns a hospitality establishment. I own I mean, it's our life, but we love it. Uh, but I just think that like you should be extremely honest with yourself about what you're getting into, and that's the best way to start, right? To like strip all the illusions and look at it for what it is, and go, all right, I see it for what it is, and I still want to do it. Then, man, then your heart is in it, and you're probably going to be successful. Great. Is it the decisions the hardest part of the business? Yeah, that would be the part. Okay, so moving things along, um, moving to the distributor role. Because this is a role that has another option that other bartenders might think of and have with developing their careers. Um, Ian and Kate, uh, they both work with Passion Distributing and they're uh, on brand side of things now. Um, why did you two choose this route and why do bartenders want to think about this career? Or what are the things that the bartenders need to be aware of when thinking about this it's funny, I never thought I was going to go this route. Am I kind of yeah, 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 I don't think any of you guys thought I was going to. I thought I was going to own my own restaurant and, you know, do that for, for my life. Uh, and then it got the job to actually take over the Halo, the Halo movement. Uh, got offered to me and I laughed at it and said, no, I will never do that. And then I woke up one Saturday morning after getting crushed behind the bar uh, on a Friday, and it took me 15 minutes to get out of bed because uh, my shoulders hurt, my back hurt, my knees hurt, my ankles hurt. Um, so I took that jump, and, and you know, the other thought was I still wanted to open a bar, and so I did it to learn one more side of this business, you know, because as you heard Caleb describing the three tier system. That is a sign we don't, as a bartender and as a bar manager, you think you understand, you don't understand. You know, uh, it, it is a totally different world in the industry. 
side. Um, so, and I think your question to go back to it, but you know, what is, uh, what, what do you need to know about getting into the brain side of things? It's a business. And they don't care how successful a bartender or a bar manager you are or you were. Um, they care how many boxes you move, you know. And what are you doing on every minute of every day to help move boxes? It's not a 40-hour-a-week job. It's a 80-90-hour-a-week job. It's you're getting phone calls at 6 a.m. You're getting phone calls at midnight. I got phone calls from all right before I'd be talking on the road and going, hey, uh, we totally forgot about this. We want to taste really high-end cognac tomorrow at 10 a.m. You know, which was, by the way, so much I think we ever done. That was a lot of fun. Tasting for those hours of cognac tomorrow at 10 30. And you got to make that happen. You know, um, you got to absolutely yes, because when Paul or Miles or any of these guys call you, they're giving you an opportunity and you better deliver on that opportunity. I think that the most important, professionally, professional side altogether, but most specifically when it comes to distributors, is your ability to be organized. It's your number one biggest tool because um, that, you know, that if you're running a bar, you're a bar manager, and does that show up to work 30 minutes late just so you can get you know, a little more sleep or an extra shower? That shit don't fly when it comes to the distributors. You show up when you have to show up at GSM at 9 a.m. on Friday morning. You better be in that room when they shut the door. It is also the ability to, uh, from that distribution side, you are looking at data and reports and emails all day. And it is all you can do sometimes to balance that work life. Um, and, that, and that's a tough thing. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time, Ryan and I, about the balance between work life and how to, you know, pay enough time to your significant other and make sure she feels or he feels loved and, you know, appreciated the number one thing in your life. But how to not let business slide by at the same time. That distribution game, it's all numbers. It's all number game. So if you're not keenly organized or have the ability to do so, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a tough sledding for you. When I first got into distribution, I was not. I had no means of understanding that. Okay, so we talked about the pitfalls. What are the just real quick a benefit each of being on the distributor side? Benefits are amazing. I can go to the doctor and not pay for it. <laughs> I'm going to the dentist next month. <laughs> uh, the biggest benefit I think of working on the distribution was the networking. Uh, yeah, I agree with the benefits as well. But going back to one of your original statements, is um, you know you, you you meet so many people and you learn so many different routes. And you shake hands, and that's kind of where my Diageo position came from. So, yeah, I don't want to get this short, but we are running a little bit of time, so I just want to make sure we talk about Grant and his position. And this was directed towards Tiffany and Brian and, and Caleb and Ian and Shine here too, but I don't want to get the police too. Um, how did you get started on this Grant Ambassador track? And what does it take to be successful in that world? Um, so prior to, uh, to making a flip over to um, the supplier side, I had a pretty 
pretty vast background just in, excuse me, in, uh, in hotels. Prior to that was uh, nightlife, things like that. So working in, working in just had to be for, for quite some time. I got to a point, honestly, as, a, as an operator that I wanted to, you know, figure out what happens on the other side of the business. Um, I was fortunate to where I, I created and also, you know, maintained some great relationships uh, over the years. And uh, I knew at some point, whether it be on merit or even a favor that if I needed to, to call you know, maybe anyone on the panel, like say, hey, I need, a, I need a gig, I can always go back. But uh, I reached out to actually one of the buyers that was, was uh, I mean, not the buyers, but one of the suppliers that was calling on me and wanted to see if there was an, an opportunity there. I got a very uh, distinct breakdown on how the rep side of the business works. And all the way up until I actually signed, um, I signed a letter to say, like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I questioned it because uh, you measure your wins very differently on this side. And being an operator, looking at how you, you know, at the end of a, an amazing shift where you got crushed five, six deep all night long, you lick your wounds, and you know that it was a su successful evening, you set up for the next day to get to it. On this side, your, your, your measurables are very different. And the things that they quantify as a success are sometimes in the beginning, kind of like, so today was a good day? Yeah, it was, it was a great day, really. Like, I go get in my car, and I'm like, so that was good. Like, what I did today was good. And it didn't always seem that way because as an operator, there are things, there are metrics that you can look at that are very different. So it's switching, switching the mindset, making the transition over was, you know, I, I was very curious in, in, the, in the, the, the realm of Paul, like saying, okay, well, maybe there's an opportunity for me to hold my own establishment because of how my mind works and how it connects to this business. This is something that I think would be helpful to know what kind of conversations my suppliers are having, what kind of conversations by way of suppliership are the distributors having, and I found out some <clears throat> awesome information. It's like, that's 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 how y'all put that. Man. That's that's how y'all put that. So, yes, going back, you know, I can, um, if, if, and if and when, when I make the transition back over, or, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, there's, there's, you know, heightened knowledge, and um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I make the transition. <laughs> My stories are completely different than everybody on this panel. Um, I don't even know if it's, you guys can hear me. I'll try to talk. Can you hear me like this? Yeah. I feel like you can. Um, seven months I've been a brand ambassador, we'll say, my manager for one brand um, under an umbrella. I have three bosses, Penelope uh, Card, a team of you, like which is Abby, and I'm my own boss. Um, and the way you describe what we do, yes, I see spreadsheets, yes, I see numbers. I have 75 accounts, blah, 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 but it's not so bad, you know, it's not so bad when you, you know the city, you enjoy, you enjoy the city, and you enjoy the actual brand, so if anyone doesn't think about focusing on one brand, because sometimes people look at you like, why would you choose one brand? Of course, I drink every brand, I mean, that's me, but to watch a brand like Wider Flores, it's easy to see it grow, and they need people like us, because they don't have bartenders on the team. They don't have a local celebrity in town, not kind of celebrity, mm -hmm. but someone that can say, no, I mean, like someone who is active, I'll say, active, I mean, <laughs> active, I mean. I mean, look, I can read it, you know, and so it's not, um, uh, it's not, it, it is black and white, it is paper, it is email spreadsheets, it is a lot of detachment, 
But there's people like us in the industry that need a little bit of a nourishment. You guys that all know me know I'm not going to do anything that I don't really care about. And that really helps the meeting. It does help the account business. It does help when you get your mind numbers. It does help to connect and close up accounts and reach out to someone when they're like, you know, hey, versus the hearing the distributor talking is black and white. Um, but I got on. Um, I did not scout for a job. I did not. Um, I didn't know what the job was going to do. I, had never, I thought I was going to work with Chef Dwayne Nutter for my whole life. We, we were, we won. I'm like, we're not. <laughs> what else do we do? And um, they looked out for me. The phone call came to me. I denied the phone call for three days. I just kept looking at the voicemail like, what the heck am I going to do for them? I don't know anything. I don't know what they think I know. I'm just, you know, personality, big cocktails. And that's how I took it. So, um, not to take away from myself, I thought, okay, it's one or one or one or two things I could do. I could grow up in my career because sure you guys can see me in an article, TV, blah blah blah, but what am I gonna do with it? What am I actually gonna do with it? Maybe with a brand for a year, and maybe with a large company for two years, but for more so, like Brian said, it's kind of a community college of what you might be doing in between times. And the benefits rock. But you have to listen, you know, as a bartender, bartenders, um, we do what we want to do. You know, we are a walking, happy vessel that goes to work, knocks it down, goes home, calls the day. All we do on the brand side is take work home, which briefly is coming with a couple cocktails or strategizing your day, or maybe not getting so shitty that night, just be like, no, I'm going home. And I'm going to report. And reporting kind of just made me feel adequate. At the same time, learning that book was hard to tell. But, um, it just started to teach me and condition me, and, you know, at my age, at my time, I'm like, I'm not going to be bartending in my 40s. I mean, I'd love to be like some of my forefathers and still be working at the same bar for 20 some odd years, but that's not the goal. So I just kind of jumped in, double fleshed it out, and, and now we're just doing this thing. And it's not, it's not so bad. I mean, it, it's work. It's, it's not that it's work, but it's a beautiful person. I love it. And uh, I, I take it. Great. I take it. Thank you for that. So I know okay. real quick. Go, go. One thing she touched on, especially if you're moving to the to the supplier side or the, the brand side, pick a brand you truly believe in. Okay. Um, I now offer a couple books that I did not believe in. And if you don't believe in them, you're not going to be able to convince this guy or that guy or, or any other buyer out there that they should believe. So, truly believe in the products you represent. Great, thank you. Um, which leads to another important topic that I've been asked a lot by chapter members of talking about personal branding. Um, we live in an age with several different ways to communicate to people, and this is def definitely directed towards Tiffany because I just personally feel like you have great social media presence. Um, <laughs> So social media has become a driving force and not just promote bars and events, but as a tool for personal branding for bartenders and careers. What is your opinion of social media as a marketing tool for bartenders and how have you leveraged it to enhance your career? Thank you for what you said. Um, thanks. Like more. Uh, I don't post often. Um, those that follow, I hate. I hate that up. We have free advertisement now. Um, depending on your age, you may not know, you know. <laughs> Years ago, we had business cards, you had meet and greet, and that was it. Um, now we have the advertisement, like, bless the advertisement marketing team right now in the world. We can market our own self. So, if you don't have a platform to say what you want to say, 
make it make sense. You know, of course I want to see your family and your kids and, and what you did that night, what you drank. Um, I just chose social media just to say the right thing. Um, my business is my business. I feel like I'm my life. I feel like I'm ashamed of my life. Not that I don't want to see me and my friends and what we do and blah, 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 blah. But that's none of my, none of anyone's business when I know, you know, it, it just doesn't work. And that platform, and I'm not saying you should be, you know, um, filtered, because um, filters are for coffee, but you have to be very careful. Now our social media is our resume. We can all answer interview, we can all write a resume, copy paste the resume. Um, those that have hired people, you can answer interview in five seconds. It's easy peasy, but when someone, which my company did, when they instantly look for you, like, what's your name, where'd you grow up, blah, 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 they go directly to your social media, and they are like, zigging in the deep. Okay, you can have a sad day, you can break up, you can do whatever, but that means a lot because what you're posting is your mental. So if your mental is um, off, maybe, because life is taking you on, that's probably, you're probably not someone that can take on work life as well because you're supposed to represent yourself and the company you will be working for, or bar, or whatever. So um, it's told me a lot because I fit in the best ways possible, and, when I, and I don't brand me brand when I do it. Even still, not my, my brand, I don't even brand my brand when I do it because I'm beyond that. You know, you want to brand the city if you just I'll say it. So just respectful, we've all seen it. It gets a little ratchet, it's tired, it's immature. Um, and don't be that, or that's how you look at yeah, we're going to touch a little bit more on social media in a bit, but talking about personal branding, I want to talk about content competitions. And Miles and Ian, you two have both had notable careers in competitions. Um, looking back, how important were doing those competitions for your career, and what were some of the things that came out of doing those competitions? Uh, sure. So I, um, I have some interesting. Uh, mixed opinions about competitions, and I did them. I did a lot of them uh, early on. That definitely helped me build a name um, because I, you know I, I won quite a few of them. Actually, the only one I ever lost to be. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that it can have some great benefits, especially the newer ones now, where you get to like the opportunity to. You know, probably four back to go to Cognac, and you've got to travel all over the place. But I think at some point, and and uh, and just to be clear, I did a lot of that. No one um, from Kibble House has done one since we opened. We're almost four years old. I think a lot of times um, it can benefit brands more than it can bartenders. And I think that uh, you know, if, if there's a, a big brand that has this competition, and a bunch of bartenders take the night off from work. To do this competition with the, the goal of winning some money, which they would have made at their job taking care of their guests. I think that really benefits the winner of the competition, and outside of that, so. Understood. I completely agree with you on that, and especially these days where a lot of brands have seen the success of what those earlier competitions did. Everybody wants to do a competition these days. I think, Kale, you can. I mean, how many, how many brands can you and you over national when you do a competition? Every other one. Every other one. I will say this. I don't think I don't think I would be where I am today, or it would have taken me longer to get there without these competitions. Uh, it allowed me to build a name for myself in the game. 
to get my name out there and get us a lot of opportunities to get to the public, you know, go all over the place because uh, I made content, you know. But in the end, the, the brands are going to use that content. They're going to use you. It's an image. Uh, I, I do think competitions are great. I think they're really good for your career. Um, I think the right competition is great. Okay. I agree. Um, so, uh, Tiffany, I mean, I haven't won as many as these guys. I think I won one out of the 15 that I competed on. It did help me brand myself. It did help me, you know, just keep trying. I would suggest that you're going to compete for a brand, at least like the brand, because your cocktail will show through that. You're just not going to be like, that's how we do like these four competitions is to see what I can get. And also, it does challenge you. Like, there's nothing like, Losing the competition because you go home that day. I'm sure we've all lost it. You go home and you're like, screw my career, screw everything I've done. I suck as a bartender. That was a stupid idea. You're looking at the person next to you, like, you know, it takes a lot out of you. So I would suggest, as great as they've taken all of us and they want to do, like the brand and then show that for your cocktail because the brands are looking at you as a person. You're the face of that cocktail and the idea that look like it. And, 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 then, and then learn from who's around you so you can do better and continue. And that's another great point she just brought up. Um, it, if you win, you lose because you're not going to win every. You're not going to win every competition. You're going to lose. Take it graciously, please. Uh, the judges are not rigging the competition. <laughs> 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 I really want to talk about this more. We have to In fact, let's go back to social media, and this one is going to be directed to the cable with Paul and Brian. Um, you guys all came up with different times up here in Atlanta. Um, what, in your opinion, are the pros and cons of social media as a marketing and branding tool? And most importantly, what are the warnings of using social media in our industry? Paul, uh, let's start off first. Okay, sure. Um, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I really have a good answer to that question. Honestly, I'm very bad at marketing myself and my restaurant. We have a great, my, my partner, Mark, does all of our social media and is excellent at it. Um, I'm terrible. My, my, uh, I haven't looked at Facebook in a long time. Uh, and my Instagram has pictures of like uh, my son and old dead writers from my dad. They would all be You know what? Uh, and again, at the risk of sounding kind of grumpy, I think so much of social media interaction in our business is so boring. <laughs> so boring. If I see another red drink with an orange spot on top of it, it's like, oh my god. Or like, you're, you're sorry. <laughs> Your plate of ramps and plate fees or whatever. Like, I just, I don't know. I just didn't. But again, maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's just what I want out of social media, right? What I want out of social media is like, I don't know, just some, something that's more entertaining or more interesting or more controversial, even. You know? Uh, we, you know, we have, we, this, this is a story, right? A very short story. We have like, we have a language of social media, right? How we communicate on social media. And uh, I once put a post on my Instagram account that kind of poked delicate fun at that, doing things like, using expressions like, 
all the fields. And, and I mean, I'm old, so I, like, I thought I was being um, transparently sarcastic in a way that was kind of goofy and made me look like an idiot because I was so right? But so many people liked it. Uh, in a way that was very genuine, they didn't, they didn't know I was kind of poking fun at, at the language of Instagram. So I would say, uh, this is really the, the like, English teacher in me talking, not, um, not the bartender or the bar owner. Like, if you're going to interact with people and get represented, that also lets you know that it's still a small human being. Like, um, it's not all about drinks or, or who we're out with for that night. I mean, it's a part of it. But that is just one side of my life. The other side of my life, like, those going at me, like, I love my dog. I'm gonna post pictures of my dog. Like, I, I, there's a lot about my life I love other than the job I do. And so I want people to see that because, I mean, to Paul's point, gen- being genuine, like, I genuinely enjoy my life and I want people to see that. That's why I take pictures. It's not to promote a platform. It's not to be a part of something greater than that. Though, at the end of the day, I'll be honest with you, like, there's a lot, there is um, a, an indi- a performance indicator that my company looks at and says, well, we need X amount of posts regarding the Agio business. That's, that's just the nature of these. Thank you, Ron. Real, real quick, Ron, can you get your time on here? Oh, you want to get a little bit of the I'll go after it. Um, yeah, I'll say it, it, for me, it really depends on your trajectory. Like, what, what exactly you're trying to do and trying to accomplish. Um, social media should be yours. It should represent you. Uh, as Paul stated, I think when wanting to make a uh, transition to whatever role, oh, yes, you should be more uh, presence, have more presence of mind what it is that you're wanting to, you know, project to, to people. But I do think it's very important to, to remain authentic. Uh, it, it's it's rough to run run into run out, run into people in the you know in actual social uh, atmospheres and that's not really who you are. It's awful. Uh, so I, I think that you know there is an expectation that goes that's attached to social media these days and in this business, especially with it being so um, you know you're you're always interacting with people. One of the things that kind of tugs at my heartstrings is that when people you know they know. I'm Ryan, so here's, if you peeked into my social media platforms, you know you're the same person. Uh, and if that's someone that you're willing to walk up to and have a conversation with, it means that I'm doing the right things. But if it's something where you're kind of like, all right, do that thing that you did on that, that means I'm doing something wrong, it's kitschy, it's hokey, it's not, it's not, I'm, I'm not projecting myself the right way. Um, the same thing goes with, again, with flipping it once you're outside, make sure that you're being the same person on the on the, uh, on those platforms. So if you're the flary guy, that does all the, be prepared that people are going to ask you to do the flary thing of the day. You know that's going to happen. So throttle those those you know those things that make you um, you know if you're trying to stand out in a certain way. Be prepared to deal with you know that, especially in my atmospheres, because once they see you, they're going to want to see that thing. Okay. That's you. Great, thank you, Brian. Real quick, Bob. Um, yeah, I'll just say that I, I am extremely guilty of the red drink orange swap thing on Instagram, and uh, and for me, it, it, it really has uh, been a good advertising tool. The downside is if I do post a photo of my I have a ten-month-old daughter, I'll lose followers because all the people want a cocktail for it. 
Um, but that's fine, because that's what my Instagram account is. But I'll also say that we, as a restaurant, and I know because you guys have bar, you probably don't either, we don't, we don't pay a dime to any PR company for any marketing other than what we do in-house. And that's where it can be a really cool tool. Because where Paul may not do that on his personal Instagram, the Tiger on the Road Club Instagram is awesome because of Bart's skills as a graphic designer and somebody in media. And that is a really excellent way to promote your business for completely free of charge. Sorry. Thank you. That was awesome, guys, talking about personal branding. We're going to go for our last topic here that we're going to put outside of called Then and Now. So this is really directed towards uh, Paul and Miles. Uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? And what do you do anything differently? Paul, you want to go first? I don't know, I guess I came back to this business the long way around. I was in it on one level from when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I'm all sporty. Uh, I, I guess I would have just told myself to stay in it um, from the get. But also, uh, one thing that has been really great, so here's the thing, to go back to the very beginning of this I love Atlanta because Atlanta has um, a kind of like diffuseness of culture that doesn't require you to be any one way, right? Um, we're Southern, but we're also incredibly diverse and uh, racially and, and, and ethnically, and also in many ways economically, although that might be changing, at least down here, maybe for the worst. But Atlanta is the first city I've lived in my life as a true vibrant middle class, you know. I knew that when I wanted to open a restaurant, I left Boston because I couldn't afford to open a restaurant in Boston and buy a house and still stop away a little bit of money to try to start family and all that stuff. But Atlanta has allowed me to do this. Um, now that I'm older, I, I think I would have just trusted my, my instincts more, you know, than I did when I was younger. And Atlanta is a great place to do that because Atlanta will kind of like let you do whatever you want to do. And if it's your true, truly your passion and you do it well and you're smart and honest about it, then there's a place for you here, you know. Um, so Atlanta, I think if you're here and you're trying to think about starting a business, it's a great, it's a great place to do it. Perfect. Um, honestly, I, I don't know that I would do much differently. I think, you know, I, I marketed for a long time. I uh, truck stayed at one of you know, the opened Leon's um, when they opened uh, eight and a half years ago and stayed there and was really just worked as hard as I possibly could. Had some friends of mine who worked at Perk Store, which I came from previously. We all went to open a restaurant together and I think we stuck to our path. And um, it, it was frustrating at times when I. I I honestly, now it's, I work with my best friends, I don't have a boss, um, there's like challenges of, you know, if, you know, your toilet breaks, you have to fix it, and you're the one in there doing all that, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, the only, the only boss is, is, to us is the, the guests that come in every day, the bank, and we get to do what we want, and so, and I honestly don't think anything. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, Ian, Tiffany, and Brian, what are the worst friends slash habits do you see in other bartenders? And how is this affecting the culture? Mm -hmm. Ian, you want to go first?
don't get a job. And it's like, I don't know, like this, three months later, maybe get another job. Or it's the grass is always greener syndrome, you know? I mean, I, I didn't realize you were in the house for, what, four, the first four, four, four and a half years. I mean, that's, that's impressive. Yes. So, uh, I, I feel bad jumping out of luminary nationally as quick as I did. And jumping on us every 18 months of maybe nationally would have been thinking. I thought all those were too short of space. Um, I I used to stay in there for a long time. You know, the run was the run there for a long time. It just is something benefits so yeah. but, so I would just say that. Yeah. Find a home and make it your home and do the best thing you can that place that you can. Brian, what about you? We got his best habits of these things that could be improved. Um as, as, as I pop around, and this is actually kind of to expand on what Ian was saying, um, I, I, I challenge a lot of the bartenders that, that, I, that I work with with the same question, and that's to ask questions. I think you, in many situations you can alleviate, um, you know, the, the jumping around if you can actualize which way it is that you really want, and it does take time to do that. Um, with the fluidity of the bar business, sometimes getting, getting what you need out of this business can be taken with a bit of informality, but you feel like, well, there's always another gig, there's always another spot that's opening up, but I think in finding a home and asking the right questions that you know pertain to you and what you want to do, and, and again, the trajectory are very important. How does it align if you're in school? Uh, is, is it going to make sense for what it is that you're, you're trying to do with school? If, uh, if you do want to make this, if you do want to make this uh, a career and, you know, embark on the, the three-tier journey and, and whatnot, how is, how is the bar operator, bar owner, going to work with you to get what you need? You know, working, working on this, in, in this business as an operator for uh, many years, I would have, you know, uh, some people on my team that were just there for school, you know, want to get it done, build that out. And then I had those that were very interested on what direction they could go. And I had to engage them in that way. If I didn't, as amazing as they were behind the bar, they weren't getting what they really needed. So they would begin to seek other, other opportunities within five or six months. So it was up to me to understand what it is that they wanted, but I still encourage um, encourage the, the people that are at the, at the helm, the ones that are actually behind the stage to say, look, here's what it, what it is I really, really wanted. This is the this is the moment that takes place during the interview process, or just that general conversation with this bar operator that you always want to work with and say, are there mentoring opportunities? Do you work with any uh, suppliers that can get get us training? Can we go to any local distilleries or breweries or anything like that to continue my education in this business because I want to be this? That's seen as a value. So if it's just about the money, you want to make five hundred, you know, do whatever. That's that's fine. But if you do want to have a variable. Uh, trajectory in this business, ask the questions, and, I, and it seems like it's more important to kind of find a, the hot spot or be a part of this particular program as opposed to getting what you need. Um, and then you can write your own ticket, whether it's here in, you know, greater Atlanta or somewhere else. So that's something that I've kind of noticed and I think that, you know, should be encouraged. Ask the questions that really pertain to the direction that you want to go. Great, thank you, Brian. Tiffany, you talked a little bit on the radio show about the slush machines. What, what else are you thinking? It's a new trend, that's... Actually, I'm not, you know, not particularly going to go out and 
to nosing someone's style or out of your menu, but, um, you know, I said funny in the joke, um, hashtag fashion boring. Um, I'm sitting right in front of you. I want to see what you're doing. And I see that's been taken away, and we're busy, we're trying to, you know, execute as fast as we can, but I see a lot of bartenders recently bringing the ticket, dropping the drink, and bouncing. And I miss seeing you pull the bottle out and flip your ginger and shell I love watching people work. Just, I want to see you work. I want to see your style. And I don't see it anymore. I see batch cocktails. I see you putting in a glass, getting the, the orange swaft. And that's it. And then, and then even though the console was immaculate and they batched perfectly, but back in the day, we batched because we had 2,000 people to serve at the festival. Or we did, you know, we, we had a humongous situation where we wanted to really execute and talk to the guests. If you have, you cannot handle, or your team cannot handle, I don't know, 10 tickets at a time, and hope there's more than you back there, then you might want to reconsider the menu. And, and yes, you're trying to work out all the bells and whistles, but fix it a little bit because batch boring is starting to get on my nerves. Great. <laughs> Which leads to the next question. Miles and Kate, what are the best trends and observations are you seeing in this new generation of bartenders? And what can we, uh, more experienced bartenders, learn from them? Miles, we're here. Um, you know, I don't like to think of the term of trends, really. Uh, but I do think that we are seeing um, good drinks at more places, which is great. Um, that, that's the one thing that's possible. I do agree 100% with Tiffany about, um, about fashion. I think you lose some sort of something that I can't even explain. Some sort of genetic watch is gone from the, it just doesn't taste the same. And, and uh, sometimes it has to be done, and I think, you know, the, the way we, we do batching uh, at, at my restaurant, but we only do it if we think we can improve the drink. So only is when, like, okay, what can we carbonate in bottles so the whole thing is carbonated? Instead of like, you know, if you're to do a French 75, for instance, and uh, you are pouring uh, something carbonated on top, top of something that is not, uh, if you can carbonate the whole thing, you can essentially make it better. Um, but I think, I think it would be beneficial, uh, and I think some of my best friends in this case, I think you'd probably agree that thinking about trends is probably not, um, a good way to go because I don't think there's a lot of longevity. I think finding your own style um, is really important and what you want to do at the establishment you're at and, and where, you, where you'll be going in the future is more important and has a uh, longer life than, than longer. I think that this basically continues your conversation, but I think the curiosity in younger bartenders is amazing. And and even say that younger partner still was kind of trite because then basically separating ourselves, we came to the same sort of way. So it's a trial and error sort of situation. I also think it's a double-edged sword because I think that bartenders that I identify, now that curiosity is a beautiful thing, but sometimes you can answer your own question and say, oh, well, I just need to go to a new place. And now going back to that conversation about jumping around from place to place. Also know this, that there's some places that just don't fit where you are, going back to Brian's statement about asking questions. There's gonna be places that just don't fit the way you are, so if you have to leave in six, eight months, you have to leave in six, eight months. 
just the nature of the beast. Like, yeah, there are a lot of places, but I think more specifically is don't jump a place just because you think you can make an extra two hundred dollars a night in this other spot. Like uh, the curiosity on the bartenders is beautiful. I agree that the drinks have gotten better younger. Um, I, I think that uh, all of us old asses up here can like take a lot of time to figure out what to do. I mean, back when Greg was at Coleman, like he was he was doing stuff with like the crappiest of boards, right? Like, I mean terrible things that he was making better than some of his parts. But now you are privy to some of the greatest things just because of your company. So I would say the curiosity is the most uh, optimistic thing. So stay curious, stay focused. But also at the same time, don't think that you're, you're that this is better for some reason than what it's been. It's just you're standing on the shoulders. That's it. So you know, maintain your curiosity. Great. So now we're coming to our final questions from all the panelists before we go into our question and answer portion of the day. The, this question goes out to each and every one of you. We'll just go down the line. What's one step that a bartender to, can do today to start advancing his career? One action step that they can do right now today to start managing the career? Uh, it depends on what you want to do with your career. Uh, but LLC is it's $100. Identify your path and stay in your lane. Uh, ask that question. Ask what it is you want to do for the long term. Uh, I think, again, going back to sort of the competition conversation, a lot of these people have had success in competitions, but that's not going to be for everybody. It's not to say you shouldn't try, but at the same time, recognize what it is for what it is. Like, if you want to work for a brand, because that's where you think you'll be comfortable, I have an education degree as well as a lot of spirits, so it kind of fits together that my job involves around training and education. But if that's not your path, and you just identify that as more money or a comfortable career, that may not be the thing for you. Keep searching, keep mining, keep digging deeper. And also, the other thing, take care of yourselves. Don't, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not have that last cocktail tonight, go home a little earlier. Or maybe think about, you know, last three, maybe, maybe think about the way you're shaking and when your right elbow is hurting when you wake up in the morning, maybe think about what you can do to alter that. Take care of yourself. Take vitamins now. Don't do it when you get out of it. I so you can't find the bar holding fish without shaking oh. QAs all the time. Like, man, you're so you shaking. We, we used to keep a bottle of lime perfect on the line. So that's all that's about, man. That's an option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I have an ankle brace. Moving on, uh, Miles, uh, one, one thing that these bar tennis can do today is make some crazy um, I'll only say the thing that I know about because I don't know about uh, being behind brands, but if you do have a desire to open um, your own bar or restaurant, find a good partner or two because doing it alone is, is it will just take you down to the ground. You need, you need to help and you need to find people who have similar ideas uh, as you. And this is the, probably the last time I was like, I also want to say that there is absolutely you don't have to 
change your career at all. Being a bartender is an amazing career in itself. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of um, Murray Stetson, um, for the blur from ZigZag in Seattle, and he was bartending there uh, four days a week, uh, well to his 50s. He was credited for finding the last word that Tatsuki's bottoms up. Um, he's the one that put that into, into the public. But he used to be my idol, and I used to always say, I'm gonna be him, I'm gonna bartend. Four nights a week, bartending is more fun than being a restaurant owner operator. I'll tell you right now, uh, I don't have the opportunity to bartend every night. Uh, you know, I used to say, I'm, just, I'm never going to have kids, I'm going to bartend all the way up to my 50s, and it'll be in my own place, and I'm still going to be just a bartender. I'll have other purposes and all the other shit. Sorry. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I just want to, you know, reiterate that. And then uh, the United States Bartenders Bill meeting, that being, just being a bartender is an awesome career. Yeah. Awesome. Work harder than the next guy. Um, and as I think, Caleb, you brought up in our back conversation, getting and doing the extra juice and doing, you know, the little extra things. Best piece of advice I around this business uh, was from my brother in law, perfect kitchens for a long time. Well, shut up and do your job. You know, but work harder than the next guy because the owners are going to notice that and they're going to. They're going to give you the opportunity to win. You know, so work harder and keep wanting to learn and get better. Because if you don't want to get better, you're not going to win. Um, I'll say uh, study. And study in the sense of for every book about cocktails that you read, read something that's hospitality driven. Um, so if there's something, I don't know, you read in, in Vibe or, you know, Bobby Watts, like something like that's fine. Check out Danny Meyer. Look at, you know, you know, try to, like, these, these are guys that have, have taken, have taken hospitality and, and made gospel and it's something that I think that we can all continue to, to grow, grow from. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that's a, a great step in the right direction with pairing the, the knowledge with you know who we are as human beings, connecting to the human truths, and I think you'll have a, uh, a, a stellar, stellar career if you're here to come on to. Paul, oh, real quick, I just want to ask: How many of the group have actually read setting the table by Danny Meyer? Three, three days. Yeah. Take that as a final. Yeah, I mean, going with what, what Brian McHale just referenced, I would say that if you're a bartender right now, and I am in this room. That means you also work in a restaurant. It's like sustainable work. So you should ask the other people that work in other positions in that restaurant if you can work in their position. Uh, be uh, come stand next to the whoever's on guard. Stand next to whoever's on saute. Hang out with the host. Sit down with the manager in the morning. And go over numbers. You have an amazing opportunity if you want to open your own place, or even if you don't, but you just want to be as he has said, better at your job than you were yesterday. That partner up with all the other people in your restaurant uh, who have positions where they can teach you something. Um, I, I've been a professor, a prep cook, a host, a bartender. You know, I, I don't think there's a position outside the grill that I haven't worked in a restaurant. And saute, grill saute, I've never worked. That would be terrible. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, you can do that tomorrow. Yeah. Well, great, guys. Thanks. It's all very good advice. And- that concludes the first part of our discussion part of the panel. So, um, everybody can put your hands together for this
So now we're going to do the Q&A part, we have uh, one of our ambassadors is walking around with a microphone, so if you have a question, please raise your hand, please specify whether it's going to go to the group or to a specific individual, speak clearly, concisely, and uh, please, uh, we do have some equal time on one of these panelists after this, so please uh, refrain from doing competitive questions, uh, if you can talk to them about them afterwards. So, uh, who's our first person who wants to ask a question? Anybody? Okay. Uh, talk, talking about relationships with um, kind of distributors, uh, people like Caleb and Tiffany. Like, how do you go about like, or say if you're running a bar, right, and you're, you're you're just stepping behind the bar to start doing your own bar program? How do you gauge like when you're doing it to begin? Um, who necessarily do you do you go with a person? that you're really good friends with and you want their product on the bar, or do you make it more profitable? Like, is someone giving you an extra case? Like, how do you approach that situation? Like, but relationships in the industry. You're asking about how to get yourself into the distribution. Yeah, well just like, like I guess like when you, when, you, when you first like step behind your first bar program, like how are you gauging like whose product you're gonna put behind the bar? Are you gonna like go with friendships, more profitable? Like, how do you do it? Uh, that's, that's a super simple question. You go, you go with, you go with what your palate likes. That it's that simple. Your relationships will dictate after that. Like, you don't you don't choose a brand because somebody's coming in and saying you should choose a brand. You choose a brand because you believe in the brand. It's the same reason why we represent the brand that we represent now. Like, you like none of our product, right? But if you think delegate Mezcal is the best Mezcal, you put that Mezcal behind your bar. I mean, like, don't choose it because somebody says. Oh, we got this cocktail competition coming up, and I need you to sell 10 cases before you get into it. That's relationship building, for sure. And there are favors that will go back and forth like that, but when you're talking about actually setting up the bar program, nah, you do it based on your power. That's, that's going to make more sense to, to your guests, to you, to the way you explain to them, because at that point, your interaction with guests is still paramount. It has nothing to do with what your distributors do. Maybe, they, maybe there's a deal that you like the product that somebody else is bringing into you, and the deal is better, so you're willing to pull that on. But again, initially, no, that, that has never been a deal with Yeah, uh, you, yeah, you said that. Um, it's nice, your, it's your program, it's whatever you want to do. You are lucky with the city that you know you got some bad asses behind some brands you may like, but there's also brands that actually don't get used often and you may get a relationship and a really good nourishing of the brand that we're not using or maybe it's not trendy or maybe it's not, you know, one of the popular ones. Um, don't ever look for a deal, by the way, if you kind of with a friend like that. Not like, hey, can you help me do something? But more so like, like the brand. And then if you like the brand, honestly, on the distribution side, they're like, okay, well, Sean likes the brand. And you know, they're walking out this many numbers, now I'm going to go over there and swipe some money over there and make it work. So just stick with your gut and, and, and rock it like that. And you'll get a, a, you'll get relationships with more integrity versus, you know, helping out first because it's still like that. These questions from Miles. Um, what's the first step you take to decide to open a bar? The first step that I took was realizing that I wanted to be in this business forever. Um, so that was one, I think. And then after that, it was uh, 
realizing that my friends at the time, who are now my business partners, also wanted to do it. Um, and then when we started to get serious, we started thinking about uh, how to get a plan together to present to the bank and start really, and, and, and meeting. And we met every week on Wednesdays for six years. And, and, that, and so, I mean, it was a, originally Kimball House was not Kimball House, it was a rock and roll beer bar with homemade sausages. It became something entirely different, but we met every single week, and on Sundays on vacation for six years. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thanks everyone so much for doing this. It's been really informative and awesome. I know I certainly appreciate it. Um, just so a quick question for the people that do work on the, the brand side of things. Because again, you mentioned that this idea of staying in your lane and when when it comes time for you to make the next move, like you'll be ready for it then, but better yourself now. I know Brian, you said something about actually seeking that out. When you made that jump, how many of you were approached by either distributors or brands or whatever to make that step and how many of you actually sought that out? Uh, so for, for me it was um, I didn't I didn't really think that I was for sure gonna make this transition. Like I said, I got I pondered it for until I was losing my mind. But it was um, once once the word was kind of out, like, okay, here's here's an opportunity, and I started, you know, looking to, to kind of see what it was really about. They were, in, in my role at the time, there were a few that actually just would, would come in and say, so what do you, what do you think about it, you know? Um, based on, I would say, whatever role that you're in, I think that because uh, I was in a hotel atmosphere, there were always, there was just an influx of people always coming through there, so I was interacting with people from, you know, a number of networks. Uh, having a bit of a project management background, people understood that that's kind of what I did, but uh, I, I spoke very highly about, you know, not only the hospitality side, but branding was important. There were YouTube stuff and blah, like all those things were happening. So as a as a buyer, folks were coming in and they'd say, like, hey, have you ever thought about it? Uh, I, I think that I struggled with uh, a couple of things, and I'll, I'll be the person that maybe throws it out there, but how would I be perceived by my peers? Um, it was a, it was a real thought for me because you know we want to be you know in, in this business we want to, to have the best representations of ourselves, but you know quite frankly there are times where it's just like ah so you went to the dark side, huh? you know that kind of thing. And, and those jokes are made, but it's a, it's a it's a real thing. So that was something that even you know some of the suppliers that I did speak with were very forthcoming about that. Like here's something that you're going to deal with. That the people that at one time saw you as this, as long as you and I've been blessed, like as long as you conduct conduct a good business in whatever role that you were previously in, you'll be viewed the same way. You're gonna catch some some black little shit here, here and there, but you know that that's a part of it. But yeah, certainly it did happen. Like there were there were uh, there were opportunities where I was approached for sure. My situation, I some of you know the ones that don't know me here. I moved to Atlanta to take that distribution job with National. Um, uh, I, yeah, basically she came and sat down at my bar and said, would you ever consider moving to Atlanta? You obviously have this on control. I was like, maybe, maybe I would. 
uh, ended up taking that job. So yes, I was approached for that one. When it came to the Miyagi job, I, I did. I basically that was BevForce.com. Is everybody know BevForce? BevForce.com. If you don't know it, then go search that today. But basically, that's all professional side industry jobs. And um, yeah, I saw that applied for, it, thinking that I had no chance to get that job. And I got a call back from the hiring person. We had a 45 minute conversation when it was supposed to take 10 minutes, and we just got along. So, luckily, we, I just I was very fortunate to talk to somebody who was a like minded person. And, uh, and with this Diageo job, the, there's a lot of account consultants. A lot of them come from different backgrounds. A lot of them come from event management. A lot of them come from distributors. And there's only a very small selection of us that came from far industry straight to the supplier. So I, I literally just fell into that. Yeah, I, I was crushed. Um, I never sought out a distributor or a supplier job. But once I got into it, I realized I really enjoyed it. You know? And to Brian's point, my biggest concern was how everyone was going to look at me. You know, when I arrived at this position. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that <laughs> I sat down with you and yeah. the there with me. was like, what do you guys think? You know? Uh, I never saw that, never thought I was going to do this, but I really enjoyed it. So I, I think I've pretty much decided. This is probably what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. But who's to say I don't get tired of it, burned out from this, and go back to it? So, being behind a bar and managing bars and restaurants, because I love doing that as well. Yeah. Hey guys, I just want to also find out one thing real quick. If anybody has any direct questions for Paul Calvert, please do that right now, because he does have to go back on the road today. If you don't, you know where to find it. And he'll be more than happy to talk to you in one thing, we, one thing we didn't talk about at all is the incredible tension between being an owner and an operator, right? And like, how you find that balance in your life. Maybe that's for next year. Uh, that's, you know, uh, I'm going to go make sure that like, the plumbing works, as I mentioned. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to try to grow your business and your brand and, and your self outside of business and all this stuff, but also know that like you gotta go put the lights on and make sure the computer's matched and like all the bank and you know all this stuff. Which goes back to what Miles said when he was having great partners is key. Because it's a lot. So is that how you do that Paul? You you, you separate like a division of labor, maybe one two miles, you, you have certain partners focus on one thing while you focus on another. Yeah, I mean I remember the day that we like the day we kind of finalized our business plan and you know, you have your name down and it's like uh, you know, Ray Smith CFO, Paul Calvert CEO, Rick Best CEO, of course. <laughs> but you know, and you look at that and you kind of go, oh that is, you know, that, that's that's cute, you know, because we're all gonna do everything, but then but then you can't all do everything and in fact our duties do pretty much line up into those titles, and they are each title is connected to what we're we're best at. You know, that's far as our director David is our chef, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. You have to divide it. We have the same exact situation. So we have four operating partners at Kimball House, um, which that means there's four of us who are owners who work there, um, and uh, we have some investment side partners as well, but. Uh, the four of us, it's all equal split, everything, even when uh, we opened all of the, um, 
we would all take tips in as, as bartenders who work as owners that would all get split evenly amongst the partners, um, which is just the, the fairest way to do things. You never question anything um, as far as money goes. And then we have um, uh, one guy um, who does all of the, uh, he's the one who does all the oysters. He um, is super passionate about shellfish and he uh, has really taken that and, and gone crazy with it. But he also is the money side, which a lot of people don't know, which thank God, because I did not want to mess with that. But he does all of the financing, bank transfers, all that sort of stuff. Um, I unfortunately, I get to uh, just do the beverage stuff. So all the wine and spirits, um, as far as um, uh, drink menus, managing uh, all of the bar staff, uh, ongoing spirits and wine education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's what I do. We have another partner who um, uh, who the other two share front of house management duties, and uh, one is our um, marketing and events director and social media, and the other one is basically like the GM who's working the floor most nights, does the front of the house schedule, um, that sort of stuff. So it's all of these direct roles, and there's never any question of who's really on the left, which is very helpful. So if I'm hearing things correctly, my love of all you guys are the eye candy. Wait for this one. Is that Certified through the Society of Wine Educators, which is 
industry-wide regarded as very important things. Uh, when I got my jobs on the professional side, both of those things were, bar smarts and the CSS were brought up. So those were two very good things that helped my career in advance. As far as an everyday context, um, man, when I was behind the bar, I was consulting, uh, I just forgot the cocktails, but today, when I first started getting into uh, craft cocktails. To, to speak to a previous point with that, with that question in mind, um, there's nothing wrong with having a conversation with your bar manager about those programs as well. CSS, there's nothing wrong with having that conversation saying, like, look, here's what I'm looking to do. Can you support me with half? Uh, could you possibly have a conversation with one of our distributors or suppliers to, to make it happen if it is a finance thing? But <clears throat> the certifications, uh, they they, they focus you in, in a way, even if just for a short period of time, or by short, maybe even just a year where you're just, you're, you're diving all the way into it, is incredibly important, especially if the bar operator is the one that's, you know, in charge of finances and things like that day to day, so they can't give the attention that, that, you, that you need. Asking that question to, you know, that GM or beverage director and saying, look, is there a possible way to fit this into the budget to make this happen because it's very important? I don't think a product can say, oh, absolutely not. There's no way I'm going to put that kind of attention into someone that's taking this business seriously. So, um, you know, app or not, like it's something that, you know, I, I would, I, I encourage my, my team to, to ask those kind of questions. And it was very interesting because they all did, even with the information, it's like, hey, you know, but it's, you know, we, I feel like I'm getting everything that I need from either from you or um, I can do it on my own. But then there were one, one or two that knew that if they stepped up to it and I'm paying for it, that they're going to take it very serious. And seeing what will come behind that was great. You know, a, a high level investment, you know, beyond measure. I think almost all of them have been hit or CSS. CSW, um, and by the way, even if you're not a wine person, <clears throat> try the CSW. Learn, learn about it. You know, you know why did you ever think you would be doing as much wine as you probably would at this point? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it was beer first, then spirits, and now I found that I really appreciate a lot more. I mean, nothing goes better with food. There's not a better thing in the world. One that one brought uh, Cicerone. Is the beer education one? Uh, hanging out in Chattanooga yesterday, Chattanooga whiskey brings up uh, without without good beer, you don't have good whiskey. You know, so mm -hmm. you know, beer is the start of the beer wine, the start of great spirits. So, Cicero is another one This is a very small, obvious thing, but I would also say if you're interested in managing a program or opening your own business, you need to get very comfortable with uh, Excel. Mm -hmm. Your representation 
to the public versus how you accept your personality at home. Is there a separation there, or do you just try to roll it all into one? Uh, I, I'll say that it's, it's I think, I, for me, it's been rolled into one, but it's, it's a, um, it's a throttle on social media. Um, Caleb sometimes will say that I need to be a little bit more flip-flops and, you know, thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Uh, a little bit more casual uh, about you know certain things because when I'm around, excuse me, when I'm around my peers, or their friends and whatnot, not that they see a different side, but they see you know there's other angles. Those that really know me know that there's you know you know the polished button up side, and then there's you know talking about dumb and dumber you know for you know two hours and knowing back and forth. Those are those are different aspects of myself, and I think everyone in this room, I know everyone in this room has, you know, we're all multifaceted, but it's it, it's what's most important as it relates to the business component is that projection. Who who you want people to know you as, and you can throttle those you know those nuances through social media or even in social like just general social environments. Um, protect who you are, though. I won't say that. Protect who you are. <clears throat> But at the, at the end of the day, when it, when it comes to something like the social climate today, it is important to, you know, give bits and, and, and pieces digitally and in person is are the opportunities to really kind of, uh, from a visual perspective, really show kind of who you are. But again, I, I base it on the platform of protecting yourself still. So I'm still trying to get my flip-flop situation. <laughs> You said that you were somebody, you just got finished five years ago. Um, where you were five years ago, hopefully you're the same person. You just have to be a part of it. Makes sense. It's all, it's all good. You can walk your dog and have a cocktail. You can enjoy history and have a cocktail. You can love cars and have a cocktail. Like, it's, it's okay to see both. I mean, whatever you're trying to brand yourself for as a bartender, if this is what you want to do, we want to know who you are. I mean, you just happen to have a drink. You know what I mean? Is that, is it just, just make it all work because we want to enjoy you and your you will show in the class. So make some, you know, if you're angry, make an angry nice cocktail that day. Some feel the days, put it is down. Or if you're feeling you know, the family affected you, like your life is the effect of who you are. So that put it glass I can take please. <laughs> Let me do it. I kinda wish Paul was here to hear this. It would make his heart happy, but um Walt Whitman said about poetry that hey, whatever. <laughs> 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 Walt Whitman said about poetry that poems are actually made in between the words. And that's the same thing about this industry that um, we are, you can't hide who you are. And you're never going to be able to. So if you try to whether it be social or whether it be whatever, like you're still gonna be who you are. You can't hide that, right? Like you can try to brand yourself a certain way, but you truly are gonna come through always. So accept that. Accept the fact that who you are inside is gonna be who you are outside as well. Blend those two together, but you have to be aware of that. You have to understand what the perception of that is gonna be. And as long as as long as it's serving a purpose, a better purpose for you, no matter what it is, keep doing that. As a personal, as a professional, I mean. Anybody else? Great. 
But anyway, one last question, and this will be our final question for the day. Hello, everybody. Mike Jones here. Um, uh, this is, I hate to end on finance, but uh, I will say one comment, um, a couple of things I did, uh, Harvard Business Review, um, Finance Basics for Managers. Um, yeah, none of you have read that. That's a good thing to read just to get the language um, down, and that definitely helped me. And Ian Cox, thank you for the spreadsheets, because that definitely helped me. Um, my question is, um, what did you all do to get the language up for yourselves for finance? What were some of the things you searched for? Yeah. Is, it, is this in regards to hey, operations? I'm sorry. In regards to operations as a bar manager or batch director. So uh, for me, it was all about... No, so I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's really helpful is that we started um, at one point we're like, okay, because uh, you guys all know that the profit margins in restaurants are, are very slim. Everybody knows that, right? Uh, so uh, we're like, okay, well, what are we doing? Um, we, we saw a drop in business at one point, and I think it was just a lot of stuff was happening, and, uh, and uh, we certainly bounced back from that, but we, we were thinking, okay, well, what is coming out of savings? We need to figure out a way to budget. So what we do now is, uh, and this is great, even if you're in charge of numbers any, anywhere, it's not in your own place, we look at the, the same day, that previous year, and it's amazing how you'll see trends that certain year. So we, make, so we basically will do a week. So every week, like this morning, I got from, from Brian, we got an email for the recap from last week. We got sent uh, percentages of food costs, wine costs, spirits costs, um, and beer costs, and oyster costs, all in their own separate categories, and then we also got a payroll cost. So we can see the total cost of, of what we, of our, we can see our numbers every single week. And that's an actual, Factual statement, and then based on how many reservations we have in the previous year, we'll get budgets for each category, which has been for me hugely helpful. I never had that when I was uh, when I was at Leon's, and I just did my best to like try and so so now I don't worry about um, like I'll have spirits that I should never have in a cocktail because they're it's just you know it's way more than a dollar an ounce, but. At the same time, I'll have something else that's way under. So it's about like creating that balance and knowing where you are. So just knowing what numbers you're hitting each week is great because you know that if you if you kind of were up a little bit the week before, you've got to make up for it so that you have a good month as a whole. So kind of ask, just asking for information from the people that did that that run numbers, and, and we get uh, a final monthly thing from our accountants, and we can also they send us surveys of restaurant trends in Atlanta from other things and. The more information you have, the better. So the budgets has helped every category in our restaurant be way more successful and keep numbers tighter without having to hinder any of the creative side of it at all. Where I learned my language, Google. Serious. When you when somebody says piano or like somebody says something like that, Google these things. If you don't understand, same as reading a book, right? If you don't understand the term, Google. Figure out what they mean. That's that's literally where I learned how to talk business speak when it comes to those days. Or ask somebody that doesn't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Steven said who's the managing partner here at the tour. We sat down in the office pretty much daily looking at numbers and that's a lot. But I got lucky to have someone I can teach you there. So, man, I can't 
that's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, for me, it, 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 it kind of happened the same way. It was along the lines of, like I said, project management before, but also um, uh, our director of finance for the, for the hotel was interpreting their, their speak to what was happening in the, in the bar business. And uh, I think to tie it all in also, is it's okay to have those kind of conversations with you know your peers that are in those particular positions about so you know <clears throat> someone brings up profit, profit and loss and then they go into you know talking about forecasting and budgeting how does that make sense to me today like what what, what can I do today and as they're asking them as they're responding to those questions maybe take taking those notes because again the fluidity the fluidity of this business doesn't always allow for taking notes, but even mental notes, putting them in your phone and going back and, and looking them over, if you don't have a direct business contact, can go a lot further than you think. There are a lot of uh, bar operators and owners that, you know, even just in the roles that we're in, that don't necessarily understand those things. They're doing them, but they don't have the right terminology to where this particular approach to your business model um, actually has a name. And I can help you fill in those holes to make you, you know, more efficient at what it is that you're doing. Uh, but, but for me, for sure, it was going to my director of finance and saying, okay, you could be talking about in-room dining or, you know, uh, uh, productivity for, you know, a, a department that has nothing to do with mine, but it helps me make more sense about this endless sheets of information and data that I'm looking at and translating it. So now that when I have to sit down for those meetings, the worst thing that you can say in front of ownership is, I'm not sure, I don't know. It's, it's, it's there. Like, you need to know, you need to understand. And when you can, uh, to Miles' point, when you can, you know, settle on trends that are making sense, now you're in a position to, to make better decisions on those. So certainly asking, asking the right questions, asking a question, um, whether it be definition or not, you know, it's very helpful. Guests don't care about that. So, like, 
I think I think that's great to be able to show people that you can cost a cocktail out to a T, but I think that you don't necessarily have to do that. If you have, you know, like Kimball House is the uh, the number one chartreuse account in the city. Everybody knows chartreuse is super expensive. How are we able to pour so much chartreuse? Because we have, uh, you know, because we'll buy a bunch of denizen for our daiquiris and like we balance things out. Where if you're gonna have something that's super expensive on one drink, that's 12 bucks. But guess what? We have another drink that's 12 bucks that we make a ton of profit on. So really just finding balance in a list as a whole over costing out each drink, because really I should be selling the drink with chartreuse for 15 and the drink with denizen for eight. But like, you know, you bump one up and pull one down and they're both equally delicious. And now the guest doesn't have to care, doesn't have to, you don't have to hinder the final product based on the cost. Yeah. Great, and I think that's a perfect note to end on because we are a little bit over time. But uh, I want to thank all the panelists today for coming out and sharing your knowledge. Thank you to Nikhil, Miles, Ian, and Brian, and Paul. Uh, thank you to Rebecca Bar, thank you to Pro Business Channel for the equipment. Thank you all of you guys for coming out. We'd love to hang out with you guys a little bit when we have food interest there. So uh, please give all of you guys one big final applause. We hope you enjoyed listening to this recording of a panel of industry experts hosted by the United States Bartenders Guild Atlanta Chapter, part of their ongoing series on Bar Talk Radio. This event was moderated by Anthony Porquez, host of Bar Talk Radio and current president of the USBG Atlanta Chapter and produced by the Pro Business Channel. Connect with the event sponsor on their Facebook page at USBG Atlanta or visit usbg.org.